I want to tell you about John Rogers. He was a, a man of great faith. How many of you heard of John Rogers before? You'll learn a, a few things, I know. Some of you maybe. He was born in uh, 1500. He was born in uh, England, uh, trained uh, theologically uh, in Cambridge. After he graduated there, he went to a place called Antwerp. Antwerp was a place where William Tyndale kind of centered a lot of his activities in these days, the 1530s. And uh, when he was there, he happened to meet William Tyndale. You remember, William Tyndale is he who worked tirelessly to translate, print, and distribute the English Bible throughout all of Europe. And uh, he had to be incognito sometimes, had to hide, had to run, had to flee, because it was a dangerous business back then, because the Catholic Church believed the Latin Vulgate was the only translation. And here he was putting it in the vulgar name of the people. Forget what the name of the Vulgate meant. Um, but that's what he was doing. But anyway, John Rogers met and was greatly influenced and impacted by, um, by Tyndale. And after the death of Tyndale, in fact, John Rogers was the one who picked up the mantle of this work to distribute the English Bible throughout Europe. And he did everything in his power, not only to distribute the power, but really to fight against the Catholic Church, its superstitions, its corruptions, preaching salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. John Rogers is one who believed everything we believe. About a month after Queen Mary took the throne, remember Mary's nickname, if you will? Who knows Mary's nickname? Bloody Mary. Yeah, put many, many Christian faithful people to death uh, in the name of Catholicism. Bloody Mary took the throne in 1553. Within a month, uh, John Rogers preached against the pestilent popery, the idolatry, and the superstition that was in the land. And, and that, within ten days, got him before a, a council of Catholic church leaders, put him in prison, sentenced him to death for his beliefs. Yet John Rogers remained faithful and true. The time came to take him out of Newgate prison to bring him to Smithfield where he would be executed. And the executioner, Mr. Woodruff, one of the sheriffs, came to John Rogers and, and asked him if he would revoke his abominable doctrines. If he would revoke what he believed about the sacrament of the altar, that it wasn't transubstantiated. And Rogers said, that which I have preached, I, preached, I will seal with my blood. And then Mr. Woodruff said, well, you're a heretic. And John Rogers said, well, that will be known the day of judgment. He said, well, I will never pray for you. John Rogers then replied, but I will pray for you. He had a sweet spirit about him. So he weighed his death on February 4th, 1555. He went cheerfully to his death. Went cheerfully to that stake where he was burned alive. Um, for the sake of the Gospel of Christ. He became the first of hundreds of martyrs that Queen Mary put to death for believing really what we believe. Justification by faith alone. And John Rogers is an example of someone who lived by faith. This morning in our text, we're going to look at two other men who are worthy for us to emulate just as John Rogers' faith was, tirelessly laboring for the, the glories of the Gospel. Stories of our men... Abel and Enoch are found in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 4 and 5. We read this. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts, and through faith, though he is dead, 
he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up. For he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. We have two examples. Abel in verse 4 and Enoch in verse 5. These are two in a whole line of men given in Hebrews 11 who, who lived by faith in the Old Testament times. Verse 7 speaks about Noah. And verse 8 speaks about Abraham. And verse 11 speaks about Sarah. Verse 20 speaks about Isaac. And verse 21 about Jacob. Verse 22 about Joseph. Verse 23 about the parents of Joseph, of, of Moses. And verse 24 speaks about Moses. Verse 31 speaks about Rahab. And these are all people of Old Testament times who lived and approached God by faith and were gained approval by Him. Even as it says in, in verse 38, verse 39, all these have gained approval through their faith. And over the next weeks and months, we're going to take an in-depth look at each of these people. Today, we, we look at two. Abel and Enoch. Now, these men lived in different times, for sure. Abel lived the beginning of creation. Enoch lived about 500 years later. Abel, think about that, living in the shadow of the Garden of Eden, knew everybody on the planet personally. You thought about that? Everyone on the planet was either his parents, Adam and Eve, he didn't have any grandparents, but had his parents or his brothers and sisters or his children or his nieces and nephews. Everyone. Or great nieces or great nephews. Everyone was related to him in that way. And if he'd have kept up and been diligent over those, those years in which he lived, he could have tracked everybody and known everybody on the planet by name. Enoch, however, lived at a different time, more like us. He was being populated with many, many people and maybe some cities were even being formed. He couldn't possibly know everybody. These men faced different outcomes of their lives. Abel was murdered by his brother. He knew the pains of death. Enoch, on the other hand, never tasted death. He was taken up to be with the Lord in the air. But as different as these men were, they both had a unifying theme of their lives. And that theme, of course, is faith. And that is the application of our text this morning. Do you have a similar faith of these men? That's the application. Is your faith like Abel's faith? Is your faith like Enoch's faith? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the, the people of the Old Testament, the words of the Old Testament were written for our instruction. They were examples for us. In 1 Corinthians 10 about the bad and Hebrews 11 about the good. They are lifted up as our example to follow. But I think there's another reason why they are lifted up by faith and a lot of it has to do with the original context of the book of Hebrews. Hebrews was written, if you remember, to Jewish people who had, uh, in some sense, forsaken their Judaism, become interested in the church. Some had come to salvation. Some were only interested. But they were in danger of going back to their Judaistic ways. They were tempted to go back to the priesthood and the sacrifices and temple worship, feasts and the festivals, all this activity. And one of the, the aims of this writer, I think, is to say that, no, a faith in Jesus is just like what they had in the Old Testament. Yes, there was much surrounding what they did. And yes, they had sacrificed. Yes, they had priests. But they're all pointing to Him. But fundamentally, none of them approached God on the basis of their sacrifices or on their works or on their feasts or festivals. Everything and everyone came to God by faith and faith alone. Just like we need to come to Jesus by faith as well. And there's a continuity in the Old Testament and the New Testament in that sense. The Old Testament saints were all believers. Believing and trusting God. And that's how they came it's not the religious works that gets us to God. It's never been that way. 
It's our faith that gets us to God. That's the author's point. It's my point. We must approach God by faith. So, as we approach each of these men, Abel and Enoch, I want to dive particularly into their faith and what their faith looks like and then apply that to each of us and just say, do you have faith like them? Like my first point, do you worship God like Abel? Do you worship God like Abel? When the writer mentions Abel, he mentions his worship. Look there again at verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts. And through faith, though he's dead, he still speaks. I, I trust you see the worship coming there in the first part of the verse. There was Abel offering to God a sacrifice. Cain also offered to God a, a sacrifice, a, a offering unto the Lord. But we see here even that Abel's is a better sacrifice. You don't want to imitate Cain's sacrifice. You want to imitate Abel's sacrifice. And it was better. Now, it, w- it was not better in that Abel received a B plus and that Cain received a C minus. Right? And it's not that, that Abel received a, a 95 score on his test, whereas Cain received only a 62. That's not it at all. Abel received an A plus and Cain flunked. That's really what it is. I say this because God received Abel's offering and He rejected Cain's offering. We know this by the account of the book of Genesis. And so, turn back with me to Genesis chapter 4. We're going to spend some time here looking at Cain and Abel, but seeing how it is that Abel came by faith and how it is that Cain didn't. We read here in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, that the man, that is Adam, Adam, the man, had relations. He knew his wife Eve as a, as a wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. Hebrew word kana, which means to get or obtain. And she said that I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. I think that she believed that this Cain was the fulfillment of the Proto-Evangelion, the first Gospel preached in John in Genesis 3.15. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. He said, I've gotten this man. Now, he's going to conquer Satan, I think is what she believed. But unbeknownst to her, Cain would not be a righteous one, but a a wicked one. But here's the first family, Adam and Eve, first parents. And we see the second son being born. In verse 2, again, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Cain was the oldest and Abel was the second in line. And in verse 2, we see them grown up. Abel was a keeper of flocks and Cain was a tiller of the ground. We see them in their professions, both of them being very noble professions. A farmer, a very noble profession. Uh, A shepherd, a very noble profession. Both are there. And then it came, it says in verse 3, some time gap takes place. It came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, on his part also, brought the firstlings of the flock and of their fat portions. Now, we don't know exactly what this course of time is. We don't know what the circumstances surrounding this occasion are. We don't know why Cain and Abel sought to bring their offerings to the Lord. These are are mysteries to us. They're not questions that are answered for us. But the sense we get is there's some kind of special occasion which called for the worship of God. Maybe God had come down and told them to come and offer a sacrifice to me. They had no law to tell them how to sacrifice. But it's some reason. Maybe there was some difficulty. Maybe some drought. Maybe some time of blessing. Maybe some time of abundance. 
We don't know. All we know is they came to worship the Lord in verse 3. Cain brought his offerings as is appropriate from the fruit of his labor. Being a farmer, he brought from the fruit of his labor. He brought produce from the field. And Abel brought the produce from his labors as well. Abel was a shepherd and so he brought an animal from his flock. There were different offerings, of course, and God received them differently. Not only were they different in substance, they were different in reception from God. Verse 4, we read this, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. There I say A+. Plus. He had regard for it. He accepted it. But for Cain and for his offering, he had no regard. Now, how it is that God communicated that He had regard for one offering and the other, we don't know. There's lots of people that surmise that God, like He did several times in the Old Testament, came down with a fire from heaven and consumed the, the offering right there on the altar. We don't know. A lot of that is conjecture. But the big question really before us in the text, which is answered for us, is why did God receive Abel's offspring? Uh, offering? And why did God reject Cain's offering? Now, there are many, you've probably heard this before, who say the issue was the type of sacrifice. Abel came with blood of an animal, they say. But Cain came to God with the produce of the ground. And, and uh, the argument is that God always demands blood. They point back to the garden when God clothed Adam and Eve, verse 21, with the, the hide, the skin of an animal, indicating that a sacrifice had to take place so as to care for Adam and Eve on their way out of the garden. Likewise, then, when coming for the Lord, we need blood. We need a sacrifice. And then that, of course, looks nicely onto the blood of Christ. That Cain didn't have blood, didn't have a, anything to atone for his sin, whereas Abel did. Now, as I've read, thought, prayed about this issue, I don't think this is the issue with Cain and Abel. Now, I, I do believe we need blood. We need the blood of Christ. We sang about that. Nothing but the blood of Jesus washed away our sins. Right? We sang of the, the glories of, of Calvary and and the cross, a Savior's sacrifice poured out for all of our, our sins. I, I believe that. But I don't, I don't think that that's the issue here. Because I don't think there's anything inherently wrong in bringing produce to the field as opposed to bringing a, an animal from the flock for a sacrifice. And I say this because the law had lots of animal sacrifices, but did you know the law also had grain offerings as well? And so it shows even that grain offering is acceptable to the Lord. And so you say, what's the issue with Cain and Abel here? I think it's their hearts. And specifically, I think it was their faith or their lack thereof. And I say that because that's what the writer of Hebrews says, right? It's by faith that Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. And so it has to do with, with internally how Abel was bringing his offering and his sacrifice to the Lord. Faith is what made Abel's sacrifice acceptable. Lack of faith is what did not make Cain's offering acceptable. And this applies directly to us as well. Faith is what makes all of our worship acceptable to God as well. And I say this is where the vital question is for us this morning, particularly as we come to worship the Lord week in, week out in this place. I mean, can you imagine coming to church, singing the songs, praying the prayers, closing your eyes, standing up, singing, belting it out, only to have God reject your worship? Can you imagine that? It's what Cain did. He made an offering. He brought from the produce of the field. He was seeking to worship the Lord. He burned it up somehow. And God says, nope, I'm not pleased with yours. 
And we too may easily be rejected as well if we don't come by faith. That's the only way we can come to God in worship. Now, the difficult thing is we don't see God's scorecard in heaven. It's not like we're going to go home Sunday afternoon, right, and, and turn on the TV and then see God's scorecard right there. We're not going to see that, right? We're going to come home from, from church today, turn on the TV, and we're going to see the Bears are winning is what we're going to see. But we're not going to see any scorecard, all right? Because God doesn't grade on performance or talent or sounds or volume or energy or passion, right? We, we don't know. But we do know how God grades, right? God grades on faith. So as you come to worship the Lord day in, week in, week out, are you believing the promises of God? Is your, is your worship one of faith up to the Lord? Are you believing that your righteousness is found only in God. I mean, that's the, the core of our faith, is this. We're justified by, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that God has done it all. He's the one that chose us from the foundation of the world. He's the one that saved us in time. He justified us. And He's the one that has glorified us. From His standpoint, it's a done deal. Is, is that such that is in your heart? Is that what you believe that God, my whole life is yours, and I believe that, and I, I trust that? Is that you how you come? Because I say this, believing in God in that way magnifies and worships the Lord. Period. When you believe and trust that He's good. John Piper tells this illustration really good. I'll just summarize what he says. He says, um, imagine yourself as a little child. Okay? You're maybe Steffi's age. She's not here. Maybe a little younger. Maybe David's age. Okay? And uh, maybe I'll do a video blog about this sometime. I'm not sure. But he, he's a, a little guy standing on the edge of the swimming pool and Daddy is there in the swimming pool. And, and Daddy is there in the swimming pool and says, Come on, David. Why don't you jump here? I will catch you. I promise I'm not going to let you drown. I'm not even going to let your head hit the water. Here, jump and come to me. And, and how do you make your Daddy look really good? I said, That's what he said? I trust him. I'm going to jump and he leap. But what if the child says, uh, no, backs away and runs away screaming? What does the child just communicate about her dad? His dad. Said, my dad can't be trusted. Or, I won't trust my dad. Or his words aren't trustworthy. Or this, it's not a good idea to do what my dad tells me to do. All those make your dad look bad. But listen, we don't want to make God look bad. Right? How do you make God look good for what He is? How, how do you prove and demonstrate that God is good? By believing in His promises. Right? And that's what it means, John Piper says, that faith glorifies God. Faith give God, gives God glory because it makes Him look good as He really is. And that's the issue when it comes to our worship. We need to come to the Lord with faith, believing Everything that He said. right? We need to come to Him with a right heart and commit ourselves entirely to Him. And that's, that's faith is trusting. It's believing in Him. And to the extent you believe is where your worship is really honoring to the Lord. That's what Abel's faith was honoring to the Lord. But Cain's heart was not like this. And, and there are clues right here in Genesis 4 that, that shows that Cain's heart was not right before the Lord. And that's why his offering was unacceptable. I mean, look, look at the offerings. We get just a little bit of a clue here. The offerings they brought. Look at verse 3. It says that Cain brought an offering to the Lord from the fruit of the ground. Okay, he brought something. We don't know whether that's 
cabbage or carrots or fruit or we don't know what that was, but somehow what he was growing he brought from the ground. But look at how it describes Abel's offering. And I think there's an intention in the text that says Abel's offering was a little bit special. It says Abel, verse 4, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of the flock and of the fat portions. I trust you see the difference here that Abel, when he brought, brought firstlings and brought the fat portions. The firstlings is like the, the, the most important, right? The, the firstborn lamb maybe that, that's precious is going to be able to bear um, other animals for you. So the fat was the, the most precious part of the animals back then. I mean, back then they didn't know about cholesterol. They uh, needed all the nourishment they had and they just ate whatever tastes really good and the fat tasted really good and so they loved that portion. It's a, it's a precious portion of that. And So I trust you see the difference here is that Abel brought his best. Cain just brought something. And my guess is that uh, Cain didn't bring his best. He didn't bring the first. But Proverbs 3, 9 and 10 says this, Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. And that is what Abel is doing. He's honoring the Lord with his first. That's what God tells us to do. Right off the top, what we get, we give to Him our first. See, God delights it when we give our best to Him. Not because He needs it. In fact, God doesn't need anybody. God doesn't need anything. It says in Acts chapter 17, Paul said that He is not uh, in need of a servant as though He needed anything. Since He Himself gives to all life and breath and all things. So it's not that God needs our best. But what is it? It's that as we give our best, we demonstrate where our heart really is before the Lord. There's a great story at the end of 2 Samuel. It's almost the last verse in 2 Samuel. David is buying the threshing floor of Ariuna to be a worship place. And um, he goes to pay Ariuna, and Ariuna says, No, 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 don't. You're the king. I want to give it to you. You know, he wants to offer it to David for free, kind of his act of worship. But David says, No, 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 no. It won't work. You must pay the price. He says in 2 Samuel 24 24, No, but I will surely buy it from you for a price because, here's the principle, I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord, my God, which costs me nothing. I'm not going to offer up something which is nothing. Rather, the principle of worship is here that I'm going to offer up that which costs me something. And too bad, so many churches in our day and age are making it easy. They kind of come to church and just do your thing and it offers, it's nothing, right? You can drive through, you can whatever, do your things, do your songs and leave and never be involved at all. Never be engaged. How different that is from what genuine worship. I will not offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. It should cost us something. Abel gave his best and Cain didn't. Abel's offering thereby was from faith and Cain's wasn't. His was from duty, I think. He just offered up what he wanted to offer up. And here's what I say. that The question again, do you worship God like Abel? Oh, there's much of Abel that, that his life doesn't apply to us. I mean, think about it. He lived before the cross. He lived before the law. But at this point, he got it exactly right. It's a point where we need to emulate him. Right? We need to give our best. When it comes to worship, do you have the heart of Abel? Do you bring the best of what you have financially? Do you bring the best of what you have spiritually? Do you bring the best of what you have 
physically? Or does God get the leftovers in your life? Does God get the last part of your day? Does God get whatever's maybe left over convenience? Does God give, get the leftover time? Does God get your leftover talents? Does God get your leftover treasures? How many of you like leftovers? <laughs> Some of you do. Oh, lots of you do. All right, that illustration backfired. But I know, I know. This um, yeah, leftovers. Yesterday's dinner is today's lunch, right? Um, okay. Well, maybe I can do it this way. One, one day, I forget what it was. It's maybe Thursday or Friday. I'm out in my office, and then I come in, and there's some macaroni and cheese that was there. The kids were eating it out of the pot, and I was eating just a little bit of it. And Hannah then offered it to me and says, Dad, would you like some? I said, like, okay. And, and then I said, here, you guys want some? He says, no, we, we can't throw this away because nobody's going to eat this leftover. Who likes leftover macaroni and cheese? Okay, some of you do. Well, none of our kids like the leftover macaroni and cheese. And so that just gets thrown out. Imagine, if you will, you give God your leftover macaroni and cheese. He doesn't want that. He wants the first. He wants the best. And I think one of the reasons why offering to God the best glorifies Him is because it really trusts Him to supply the lack, right? Trust Him to help you with the rest of your time you prioritize your time, trust Him with the rest of your duties that you have to do. And so, if we worship the Lord, we need to worship Him by faith just like Abel. And you think about the worship of Abel, it cost Him His life. It cost Him His life to worship this way. So, let's look back and see that account here in verse 4. Cain's heart again is going to become obvious. We've seen that probably in what he brought. We also see it in how Cain then killed his brother. Look at the end of verse 4. The Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So, Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. I think his countenance fell because he knew he was wrong. I think he was angry because he was hoping that God would still accept him anyway. But let me ask you this. With whom was Cain angry? Who's he angry with? I think he was angry with God, but I think also he was angry with his brother as it shows how he murdered him, how things played out, right? Verse 6, Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? (laughs) It's another one of those God questions, right? God knew very well why he was angry. God knew very well why his countenance had fallen because he came with the wrong heart. And those who often come out of duty and externals want God to accept them even though they're not giving Him their whole heart. They want God to give them His whole heart. It doesn't work that way. And then God says to him, verse 7, If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? Another God question. Of course it will. And if you do not do well, Sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. How kind of God in these words to confront Cain personally with his sin. 
I'm not sure we would like that or not, but that would be a kindness of God if we sin or had some temptation of sinning. If God Himself would visit us and say, whoa, wait on there. What are you doing? Why are you angrier? Why are you walking in this way? And then, and then walks through the, the consequences. Okay, think about this. You, you, you're, you're, you're tempted to sin. You're being angry. You're gonna, you've got a chance. Right? Do what's right. And you'll be happy. Do what's wrong. And sin will master you. It'll be terrible for you. Well, rather than mastering sin, sin mastered him. The tragedy comes in in verse 8. This crouching, sneaking, personified sin then jumps out, captures Cain, and he's carried away and tempted. Sin leads to death. Right? Cain told Abel, his brother, we don't know what he told him, maybe he said to him, I think he said, hey, come here, i got something to show you. And it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. And such an act has marked Cain down through the centuries as a wicked man, and rightly so. We don't name our sons Judas for good reason. We don't name our sons Cain for good reasons either. Jude says of him, Woe to the false teachers, they've gone the way of Cain. Faithless, murderous people. John says in his epistle that we ought to love each other. And who is picked up as the maximum negative example in all the Scriptures? Cain is. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. It's amazing, isn't it? That one man's righteousness stirred the anger and resentment of his brother... Kind of crazy. Right? You seek to do good things and you're hated for it. Sound crazy? Not, not so much. Not really. Happens all the time. Happened to our Lord. It's the experience of Jesus. He'd never done anything wrong. And yet He was spurned by His brothers. It says in John 7, as, Jesus, as the feast was going on, I think it was a feast of booze, was going on up in Jerusalem and Jesus was there with His brothers. Nazareth, Capernaum, not exactly sure. can't remember quite where they were. But, but His brothers were mocking Jesus. <laughs> they're saying, oh, there's the feast. Say, How about you go up there? Even they said this, listen, for no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, right? If you really are the Messiah, how about you go up to the feast and then show yourself to everybody? And John comments, parenthetically, John 7, verse 5, for not even his brothers were believing in him. And here was Jesus, who never sinned against his brother or sister. Nathan, could you imagine that? Your sister never sinned against you? Becca, can you imagine that? Nathan never sins against you? You can't. I mean, brothers and sisters are born for strife oftentimes. They, they're born to teach us sanctification. That's what they are. But Jesus never done anything wrong. Never sinned against his brothers in any way. Always sought to encourage as appropriate. Probably confronted sin. But they saw him as this righteous older brother. They saw him as self-righteous probably, though he wasn't. He was perfectly righteous. And yet, they weren't believing in him. A few short years, the Pharisees, bottom line, hated him for his righteousness. They killed him as well. In fact, it says in John 15.25, Jesus prophesying, 
talking about he, he was hated without a cause. That's why at his trial, they had all these witnesses trying to get, get somebody against him and they couldn't find anybody except false witnesses. And then ultimately, he was crucified for a, a right thing, claiming to be king of the Jews, being king of the Jews. He was king of the Jews. He is king of the Jews. That's why he was crucified. It wasn't for any sin. Jesus committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And even while being reviled, he didn't revile in return. Even while suffering, he uttered no threats. He died a righteous man, kept entrusting himself to God, who judges righteously. First Peter 2. That was the life and death of Jesus. He was hated and killed so that we might have life. And likewise, Abel lived a righteous life and was killed for it. Such was his worship. He didn't die in vain. I think uh, many of the martyrs who have lived down through church history haven't died in vain either. I mean, story after story after story tell of the, the blood of the martyrs and the effect that their lives had. Like, think about this, the story of Probius. Hero from church history. Lived in 250 A.D. Somewhere around there. He was arrested by the Romans, whipped, flogged until blood flowed, laden with chains, thrown into prison. A few days later, he was brought out and commanded to sacrifice and worship the heathen gods. And he knew full well if he refused, he'd be tortured and killed. And as he stood before the Roman counselors there, the Roman police, it's Probius, 250 A.D., he says, Because you whipped me and flogged me, I've come better prepared than before, for what I've suffered has only strengthened me in my resolution. Employ your whole power against me, and you shall find out that neither you, the emperor, nor the gods you serve, nor even the devils your father shall compel me to worship idols. And so he was sent out to further tortures, eventual death by the sword. But know that there are many martyrs who took place, who were martyred in the early church. And as Tertullian said, it was the blood of the martyrs that was seed of the church. It was the martyrs that then, their, their testimony wasn't wasted, that actually grew the church. And so the Roman Empire which was around the time of Christ, by 300 years later, 325 was declared the Holy Roman Empire because Christianity so saturated the world because of the testimony of so many martyrs. Because there's something about that. If you, if you show that your faith is worth dying for, people will say, hey, if it's worth dying for, it's worth living for. And the effect of a, of a martyrdom is profitable. And so is like Abel... Abel being killed for his righteousness didn't die in vain. Go back to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to see here how he didn't die in vain. And you might even be thinking, well, if I sacrifice, this is going to be hard. It's going to, it's going to hurt me. Or, you know, if, if you have a testimony of a, of a righteous life, maybe for your family or for your friends, it's never going to be wasted. As his Abel's is. Oh, you may be persecuted. And, and times may go bad for you, but, but your testimony will never be wasted. And that was Abel's testimony. We see in verse 4 again, By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain. We talked about that. Through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. We talked about that. God testifying about his gifts. Somehow he testified of his, his faith, of his offering, his sacrifice. But here we haven't talked about this a lot. And through faith, though he's dead, he still speaks. Abel, here being the first martyr, let his martyrdom speak. I also need to come in here. It didn't take long for sin to manifest itself in the human heart, did it? I mean, 
Think about it here. First generation of people culminated in the most wicked of deeds to kill a family member. One generation. Never be surprised at the strength and severity of sin that comes in your life and the lives of others. Listen, but never be surprised also at the power of a righteous testimony. Even when you're gone, think about it. Here it is. Thousands of years later, we're still talking about Abel. Why? Because of his righteous death. Monday. Let's see. It's uh, January 17th. You know what we're celebrating Monday as a nation? Yes, Andrew. Uh, Nathan. Martin Luther King Jr. Day. And those of you who are in public schools, have that day off. Right? And those of you who are teachers, Ryan, you have that day off? <laughs> have that day off. Good. Um, Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Today we remember as a nation this remarkable man. But do you know what makes him so remarkable? Certainly his life made him remarkable. He did much for the cause of the civil rights movement. But what really made the life of Martin Luther King remarkable was the bullet that he received in the right cheek went through his spinal cord that lodged in his shoulder. That's what made him remarkable. I think that if Martin Luther King Jr. had lived his entire life fighting for civil rights and done much good in that area, I don't think we'd be celebrating his day. I don't think so. Because there's something about a death, a martyr's death, that will immortalize people. It just is. It just does. And even in early death, we'll do the same thing. It is appropriate that this day is... a. It's a day that we as a church are going to formally dedicate ourselves to God, using the use of this building, pleading God would use this building. Um, and you know what? A name, Frank Yonke will probably use that name uh, when he comes up here and gives his testimony. A guy named Rich Kearns. Um, he died 16 and a half years ago. We would have named Carissa Rich had uh, she been a he. That's what we would have done. Um, but just he was a, he was a man, Grace Church made. You've never heard of him, but he's really the reason why Rock Valley Bible Church exists because he set a vision for church planting, and, and that's why Kishwaukee Bible Church was planted. That's why great, that's why Rock Valley Bible Church was planted because of him. He died at age 45 from cancer, and uh, his faith is remembered by many today who were impacted by him. And I think there's something that a, a death of somebody even helps to immortalize that, that he'll be remembered for years. If you just listen for his name this afternoon, if you can come, I hope you can come. Uh, Rich Kearns. But it's the case of Abel. Though he's dead, he still speaks. Jesus even spoke about Abel as being righteous Abel. And even today, we are talking about him. A righteous life will have a, a similar effect. Parents, never underestimate the effect that a righteous life will have on the life of your children. Even when you're, you're gone or, or years later, they'll remember the little things you did. They'll remember the, the faith you had. They'll remember the worship that you had. Even as we talk of, of Abel, though he's dead, he still speaks. And never doubt the power of a righteous life when dead will still speak. Well, do you worship God like Abel? I, I hope we do. We're a church that worships God by faith. Let's turn our attention quickly here now to the second person, Enoch. My question here for us is, do you walk with God like Enoch? 
Do you walk with God like Enoch? Verse 5, By faith Enoch was taken up so that he would not see death. And he was not found because God took him up, for he obtained the witness that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. Enoch is a pretty obscure figure in the Old Testament. His name, think about this, only occurs in three passages in the Old Testament. And each time, it's only in a genealogy. So normally in a genealogy, all, all that you hear is about who your parents were, probably your dad, who your children were, probably just your sons. That's about all we know about Enoch. It's just parents, children. But the genealogy in Genesis 5 gives a little bit of insight into his life. Think about, listen to what it says. You don't need to turn there. You can, but I'm not going to. We're not going to look at a lot. This is what it says. Enoch lived 65 years and became the father of Methuselah. Then Enoch walked with God 300 years after he became the father of Methuselah and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him. My application question for you this morning comes from this phrase found twice in Genesis 5. That Enoch walked with God. It's found twice, found in uh, Genesis 5, verse 22, Genesis 5, verse 24. Walking with God, what does it mean? It means a soul who lives with God and for God every minute of the day. It's a soul that, that lives in light of the spiritual realities of life every moment of the day. It describes one who lives in close communion with God, rejoicing always, praying always, giving thanks always for all things, as Paul tells us to do in 1 Thessalonians 5. Here's how Matthew Henry described walking with God, what it meant. Enoch was really, eminently, actively, progressively, and perseveringly religious. Actively, always, perseveringly, progressively Religious, but now by religious, it doesn't have the bad religious context. I mean, Matthew Henry, he was 500 years ago. What it, what it means, he's talking about just eminently always spiritually minded. And then he says, his, in his conformity to God, in his communion with God, and his complacency in God. Just, just conforming himself to God, communing with God, and by complacency in God, it doesn't, that's a bad term today too, but that doesn't mean like, oh, whatever, but it just means contentedness in God. A passion, a pleasure in God. He had total satisfaction in God. He didn't need anything else. That's the idea of walking with God. And so, really, I put a big mirror up here now and I say, does that describe you? Are you constantly, always praying, always giving thanks, always rejoicing, always just communion with God? Is God your passion? Is God your friend? Are you daily in His Word? Do you constantly speak... To him. Past week, in my Bible reading, reading in Nehemiah about Nehemiah being confronted by the king, and the king says, Nehemiah, why are you so sad? And he says, Is there anything I can do? And it says, Then I prayed to God, and I said, just like he prayed to God, and he said, He was he was one who's walking with God, right? Just just praying to God in the midst of every day. I didn't say, Okay, well, let me, let me take a, an hour in my room to pray. No, just always praying. That's what we're called to do. And I walk with God. And that's what Enoch did. He, he walked with God. And according to verse 5 here, we say, we see that he was taken up so he would not see death. Now, it's interesting if you, 
go back into Genesis 5 and read the genealogies, you hear of all the people who died. Normally in genealogy, you don't hear about how they died. You hear maybe how many years they lived. You hear maybe who their fathers were, their sons were. Um, but you don't get the emphasis here about how he died. It says regarding Adam in Genesis 5, 5, and he died. Regarding Seth in Genesis 5, 8, and he died. Regarding Enosh, and he died. Kenan, and he died. Mahalel, and he died. Jared, and he died. Methuselah, and he died. Lamech, and he died. Right over and over, all these guys who died. And they died because of the sin of Adam, because all sinned in Adam. But there's only one in the genealogy who didn't die, and that was Enoch. And he was rather taken up. He went directly into the presence of God without dying. He was, if you will, he was raptured. He was taken. He was snatched up. He was like Elijah who went up to heaven in a whirlwind. He was like Jesus who ascended into heaven before the eyes of the apostles. He was like all of us who are alive and remain when the Lord returns and will be caught up together in the clouds with the air. That's what 1 Thessalonians 5, 4 says. First, those who are dead are going to raise from the graves. Then those who are alive when Christ returns will be snatched up together with Him. And so here was Enoch. One moment he was on the earth, and the next moment he was with God in heaven. And people looked for him. I mean, we looked there in verse 5, he was not found. I mean, the implication here, they didn't find him, but they were looking for him. So where's Enoch? Where's Enoch? We don't know. And the answer is, well, he's in heaven because he was caught up together with God. And you say, why was he taken up like this? Verse 5 tells us why he was. He says, for, this is the reason why, why he was taken up is because he obtained the witness, that is, he obtained the testimony from God that before his being taken up, he was pleasing to God. In other words, God looked down upon him and was pleased with the way that Enoch was living. He was pleased with the way that Enoch was walking with God and to save him from the pains of death in an increasingly wicked world, God just took him out chose to take him up into heaven. You can see how wicked the world was in Genesis 6-5 where it says every thought and intention of the heart was only evil continually. That's where the people were going. And it's the world in which Enoch was living and he was taken out of that. And notice what the writer says here in verse 5. It was by faith that Enoch was taken up. We find out from verse 6 which really ties on to Enoch. And I'd love to address verse 6 today. We won't for the sake of time. And also I want to I want to really talk about verse 6 next week. We're just going to take that um, and, and open it up. I'm, I'm excited to do that. It says in verse 6, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. So you want to please God, you need to have faith. Because he who comes to God must believe that He is. You must believe in the reality of God and that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. You need to believe in the reality of God. You believe in the reward of God. That's what faith is. But I want you to notice here is that while well, faith is impossible to please Him, but verse 5 says, by faith Enoch did please God. He did obtain the testimony. And I say, so what is it to please God in Enoch's life? It wasn't His sacrifices. It wasn't His attendance at worship. It wasn't the songs that He sang or the, the prayers that He prayed. It's the ways He served others. It wasn't the ways He served others, rather. It's the way He believed. It's His faith that pleased God. His faith was demonstrated in His walk with God. And so I ask you, how's your walk? Are you walking with the Lord? You know, the book of Ephesians uses that metaphor 
to describe how it is that we should walk. We should walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called. God has saved us and called us for the holy calling. And how is it that we should walk? We should walk in consistency with that. We should walk in love. We should walk in wisdom. We should walk in the light. Are you walking those ways? Final, final story and then I'll, I'll close this morning. I was out this week in my driveway. I um, can't remember when I was. I think, Dad, you brought up some office furniture from my doctor's office and got a file cabinet that was free for us so I put it in my, my office. But anyways, out, out in the garage we're kind of transferring things there and I see my neighbor walking up from down the street and he had his hat on. He was, he was walking like this. That means, right? He's exercising. Right? Because it's the only time you walk like that. Anyway, he's exercising. He's coming. He's coming in. And uh, so I, 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 so I greeted him and said, "Hey, how you doing?" And I said, "Hey, you enjoy your walk?" And he said, "Yeah." I said, "Well, it's sure cold out there." And uh, he said, "Yeah, it is." But he said, and he said, "Yes, but I've determined I'm going to walk every day, regardless of what the weather is like." I'm not sure if this is a New Year's resolution, or, uh, but he's just going to seek to walk every day. And so that was fine. And then a few days later, uh, maybe this was Friday, I, you know, I can't quite remember. There was a little bit of snow on the ground. Maybe this was yesterday, I can't remember. But uh, as I was, I was out in the driveway again, he walked outside of his house. And so I had another conversation with him. I said, uh, hey, so you're, um, you're taking a walk today, huh? You're, you're out in the snow, yeah? He says, yep, every day. And then I asked him about his wife. Well, is your, is your wife joining you or, or not? And, and uh, he then told me about, no, she's kind of snow and the ice kind of scares her a little bit. It's, it's pretty treacherous out there. It can be with the, the snow and the ice. He even tells me he's fallen down a few times on his walk because of the, the snow and the ice outside as he seeks to walk. But he basically said, I'm committed to walking every day. Well, now why is he committed to walking every day? Probably for his health. Probably helps him feel better. But I, as I thought about that, I said, you know what? What a good picture that ought to be of us. What are you doing? Well, I'm just walking with the Lord every day, you know? Every day, regardless. That's just where I am going to be. Do you have that commitment? It just says, every day I'm going to walk with the Lord. Listen, if my neighbor is walking for earthly health, will you walk with the Lord for your spiritual health? by faith to be pleasing to God like Enoch so he'll protect you and guide you and guard you. This is the way. So how's your worship? Is your worship like Abel? How's your walk? Is your walk like Enoch? May God grant us the grace to worship and walk like these two men did. Let's pray. Father, we don't know all about these men's lives and certainly there was sin in both of them. And yet the pattern of their life was one that they were those who believed in You. Those who trusted You with everything of their being. And I pray that You'd strengthen us. God, it's not in us to be able to do this. God, it's only in Christ and in Him alone. And so I pray that You'd grant us the strength, God, to help us. Stir in our hearts. Uh, May we not be vain worshipers here at Rock Valley Bible Church. May we not be vain, busybodies, going about, scurrying about, doing a lot of religious things, not a genuine internal walk with you by faith. So God, just help us in that, that path as we sink to glorify Christ.
and all he's done for us on the cross. In whose name we pray. Amen.